Hello and welcome to episode 10 of series 3 of the Decade Podcast. This is the podcast that takes an in-depth look into the 2021 project started by comedian Mark Watson. I'm your host Chris Jack. I'm a little bit like Mark, except I'm still wondering about toast on Christmas Day. I don't know why it bothers me. I forgo breakfast altogether on Christmas Day and go straight for the gin and tonics. That's because it's the only day of the year when it's acceptable to start drinking at 9am. Still not acceptable, is it? Anyway, this is the finale of the series, and what a guest we've got for you today. You can finally stop sending me those private messages and threatening letters about getting her on the podcast. Also, I might add, there was one quite frankly obscene voice note sent to me. You know who you are. So, this is the one you've all been waiting for. It's the wonderful. The fabulous. It's only Vix Layton. This episode is all about consumer championing. Championing? Champ- is championing? Is championing? I can't even say it. Is championing a word? It's about that. Comedy. And a whole load of shout outs for wonderful decaders, comedians, and downright fabulous people. Please enjoy the decade goals of Vix. Thank you, Vix, for joining me on the Decade Podcast. It's lovely having you here. I know, it's a treat. I've sort of been lobbying to get on since the first season, so I'm glad you finally let me. So. Well, it's not it's not so much letting you. I just have to save the I have to save the biggest guests for the, the finale, really. So, um, Are you calling me fat? <laughs> this is a brilliant start. Um, I'm already cancelled and uh, I've called the guests <laughs> fat. So brilliant. Fantastic. Thanks, Vix. If I say it's about the main people, is that okay? Okay, that's fair. Yeah. That's that's, that's, I'll, I'll take that. It's complimentary. <laughs> it's only teasing. Don't cancel Chris. And yeah, and for straight white men, being cancelled is absolutely no obstacle to a successful career in comedy, to be honest. So uh, everyone's doing it. They are so cancelled, they managed to get the primetime TV spots and all the gigs. Exactly. Oh, to be cancelled like that. (laughs) Um, And I've just noticed uh, Diet Coke, which is always welcome here, but I am addicted. Um, Same. Uh, Well, I've got three massive boxes of them because they're on offer. So they were like, well, I did have three massive boxes. Now I've only got two because I've already got through 24 cans. So uh, let's not find out when I bought them. I can check your Twitter to find out when you bought them because I'm pretty sure you shouted about it at the time. I shared the deal at the time because I I just couldn't believe that value, Chris. (laughs) It's my day job. It's not my fault. I'm a money saver by trade. So Well, I think that kind of um, introduces you a little bit, but the first thing we ask people to do is introduce themselves. Okay, great. So I am Vix Layton. I am a money-saving consumer expert PR person. That's my day job. And in the evening, uh, well, I started a hobby that uh, you probably may talk to me a little bit about later, (laughs) about five years ago, that's taken over my life. And it cost me more money than I probably earned, but it is an absolute joy. So stand-up comedy in the evenings, weekdays, and now some weekends. So it is a constant battle between money-saving and spending money on getting to gigs. I reached a point in my career where I was settled. I was earning a nice amount of money to have a decent quality of life. And I was like, oh, no, this is too good. I must do something to ruin this for myself. And stand-up comedy was the answer, apparently. So uh, opened up a big money pit, dug a hole in the garden, chucked it in. Yeah, if you can't live on what's in the, what's in the bucket at the end of the night, then, you know, what are we doing with our lives? Yeah, it's, it's, sometimes it's foreign currency. Sometimes it's a chewing gum. You just, you can't pay your bills with that, Chris. This hasn't been in circulation for 20 years. What am I going to do with this sixpence? But uh, yeah, it's always an adventure. I was going to ask, because you didn't say at the beginning, at what point do you become a consumer champion? Is there like a league table you need to go up? 
I think so, yeah. So basically I started out as just a cheap person, like a freelance cheap person. It's my dad has instilled that in me. My dad and I have a very different idea of what our time is worth though. So my dad will travel for hours to get something worth a quid, whereas I'm not I'm not that girl. But uh, yeah, my dad's a Dell boy. So I was a good money saver. I started working in car insurance in a call centre and accidentally moved to a price comparison site from there. Fell in love with it as a day job, started sort of mouthing off about it in pubs whenever anybody would have me. Uh, Standard issue, let me write for them on how to save money back when it was a magazine and not a podcast. So brilliant, brilliant Sarah Millican's uh, editorial team. Because I just kept pitching work and they're like, we don't need any more writers. I was like, I'm going to keep asking. You might as well just let me. (laughs) So I wrote some stuff for them. And uh, yeah, it springboarded me into every now and again being asked to comment on like mostly the radio obviously the highlight of my money saving career so far has been Steph's packed lunch that was great I was like this is the start of my broadcast career that was in May haven't been on telly since trying not to make any assumptions about it in terms of the quality of my performance maybe they're just busy I'm sure they mean well, to reply. I mean, they're probably sifting for all the cancelled male comedians to see who they can get on the first. Once they get through them, it'll be me again. Once they get through them. Do you, at one day, do you get to have, uh, I mean, I don't know how they, you will at one point be, you know, the people's champion in terms of money saver. I like to consider myself to be like the reverse Joe Lysett, because Joe Lysett got big in comedy and then started doing consumer champion money saving stuff and i've just done it the other way so i feel like we're going to meet in the middle as champion money saving gods of comedy very soon it's just a matter of time and it's going to be prime time it's going to be saturday night it's going to be money saving comedy all around and you're both going to change your name to hugo boss as well yeah exactly i'll yeah he'll be he'll be hugo boss i'll be calvin klein it'll be a beautiful start of a beautiful working relationship How did you first hear about the Decade Project? It was one of those things where Mark mentioned that he was doing a project of that nature and he was like, oh, this is something you're going to be interested in because you're sort of doing it already. Because I think the long show very much, the concept of that, there's a lot of silly fantas, but I think Mark really does love it when he can find somebody who wants to do something that they've always wanted to do or he can help them sort of achieve a goal or a task or encourage them to do some artwork or I think a lot of the marathon shows have had that concept about them so I got involved in the last in-person one before Church Fest and I was phobic of public speaking so I'd done a course uh, with funny women actually Lynn Parker's funny women it was a half day course and it was meant to be a way for me to do more corporate speaking because I kept moaning about conferences having loads of male speakers and then I was asked to speak at conferences and I was like oh no I want women to speak but not me somebody else must do this and I was like look I've got I've got to be part of the solution or I have to stop moaning about it so I drunkenly signed up to this course uh, with Lynn Parker and uh it was the start of something. So it didn't cure me because I was proper. My eyelid would twitch. I could feel like I was going to be sick. I was so phobic. It was a proper psychosomatic physical responses. It didn't cure me of those, but it did make me feel like it was something I could overcome. So I came out of that. And at the end, Lynn Parker said, oh, what are you going to do with your stand up now then? And I was like, what am I going to do with my stand up? So I did, Chris, something that you will recognize. I tweeted about it. And uh, nobody tweeted me back. Everybody agreed that it was a really good idea for me to do stand-up and I was very funny, but nobody really had anything practical to offer me. So I was like, you know what? I've tweeted about it twice now. I've done all I can. I could put this to bed. 
like I've absolutely gone to the limits to make stand-up work. But uh, Mark saw my tweet and tweeted me back and said, do you want to be part of my marathon show and learn comedy once and for all and, and get over this? And I said yes. And uh, yeah, it was probably one of the scariest things I've ever done, considering it's prior to that it sounds ridiculous I wouldn't even enjoy going into a pub on my own like I had a real thing about I'd rather wait outside for my friend to arrive for us to go into the pub together than go and sit on my own in the pub I wouldn't go to the cinema on my own so the idea of going because I couldn't ask anyone to come to a 26.2 hour show with me because that sounds like crazy person business so I knew I'd have to do it on my own (laughs) And uh, it was, you know, I've been a massive fan of Mark. He's been one of my favourite comedians since he'd hate how long it's been because I was like, I was a teenager, he was an adult. But yeah, I've been a massive fan of his for years and years and years and years. So when your favourite comedian asks you to do something, you kind of have to put aside all your phobias and all your fears and and bloody do it, really. So I got myself there. And it took about, I I settled in because it took about five hours for Mark to remember that he'd asked me there. And I thought I got away with it, to be honest. It got to about 2am. I'd finally settled in. My heart rate finally relaxed down. I was like, he's forgotten. Amazing. I just get to enjoy 26.2 hours. It's not my fault. Brilliant. Again, I was like, I've done all I can. And uh, then he remembered it. And uh, I got to meet the first set of like, he'll call it the What's On Of Us. So it was probably my first foray into the, into the What's On Of Us. So he was like, who will help Vix do a session on material writing? And Lulu Popplewell was there. So I did a, an hour with Lulu going through ideas for stand-up. And then Tom Tuck did a little session with me. It was just Misha Anka about self-confidence and basically everybody, how everyone wants you to succeed. And it was... it felt like a really profound experience but I do recognize that it was like four in the morning and I had not slept for about 20 hours but it was one of the best weirdest scariest most exciting days and I came away completely changed in that weird way I think you'll know this as well from from Watson events where you go out into the real world you're like I want to tell everybody about this but you start talking about it and you realize it sounds completely bonkers (laughs) you have these experiences and you almost can't tell anyone about it my whole life had changed, basically. I sat in a taxi on the way back and my whole perspective had changed about what I was able to achieve. And it was profound. And then I went to work the next day at nine o'clock because I'd forgotten to book the day off like an absolute moron. And people were like, oh, what did you do with your day off? And I was like, I can't even begin to tell you. I bought Tian and Dewey up a paddling pool. Uh, <laughs> Angela Barnes wore a jumper to do a bolero. Like, I, we got really into sprouts. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was quite a weird... It was, yeah, a weird, like split path moment in my life where I chose a route that people could not follow me down and then a couple of weeks later Tom Tuck remembered me and booked me to do Alternative Comedy Memorial Society so I did my first ever gig so he didn't give me time to overthink it literally on the day he messaged me and went do you want to do this tonight and if it hadn't been that first gig which again was absolutely full of people that had been at the marathon show because it was stacked, it was Alexander Bennett was there, I think Lulu was there that night as well. It was full of people, Leslie and Burgess. Had it not been that gig, I can't say I would have done it again. But it was the most loving, kind, like sensitive gig that I could ever have asked for for a first one. And I got paid for it, which was really set a high bar that was not achieved again for about three or four years. So I really liked what you said about the, the not having the choice not to do it. Yeah, there were a couple of situations where it was just such a once in a lifetime thing that I just felt, yeah, if Mark Watson asked me to do something, I'm, I'm doing it. Yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm going to try and impress him. I'm going to do my best. And then when Tom Tuck asked me, I was like, this is such a lovely thing for someone to do because he'd helped me write my first set. I was like, it's an offer I can't refuse. And I remember being at the gym at the time, but rare, rare, rare to happen these days. But at the time, that was something I thought was a good use of my time. Uh, now it's traveling on trains. But I was at the gym and I was, I didn't even know how to reply. I was like, 
I could just pretend I haven't read it. And it took me a good two hours to reply to like make peace with the idea that I might be doing that. And cool, it was such an iconic gig as well that I spoke to my comedy friend, Mark Burrows, and I was like, oh, I've been invited to do this gig. And he's like, that's such a cool gig. You've got to do it. But I, I've had a lot of accountability. And I think the reason I love the, well, now the Decades Project, but even prior to that, I think you were a community before we were a community. Mm. And uh, I used to keep myself accountable by tweeting about it. And then people would be invested in it and they'd tell me to go. And if I tweeted about it and I told people publicly, I felt like I had to do it. There was a lot of people keeping me from being a coward and backing out of things at the last minute. Peer pressure really did build my comedy career at the start. There is a degree of that though, isn't there? There is a bit, you know, the the community around, he acts as like an instigator to these people to then support everyone else and kind of push you on in lots of different scenarios, which I think is, is, is a nice way. And people doing things they wouldn't have done without that community, which I think is just lovely, really. Yeah, and it, it just, you know, over and over again, if I've tweeted something, it's it's usually one of you guys that will come through and be like, it was a bad gig and it's it's here and it's Chrissy, that when Pia was first there to like go, it's all right, you're still it's great, fine. let's let's move on together. And I, I you know, I, I always do the same. It, it does feel like it's really collaborative and it, it feels like a team effort, even though it's not. I've never really felt on my own with it. Even with the uh, gigs that I've done, the uh, <laughs> bring your own jokes, work in progresses, they have been the best possible send off for two years in a row for the shows that I've taken to Edinburgh. I can't imagine not doing that. They've just been the most supportive, kind gigs and they've just set me up. It's always the last one I do before I go now. I've done it two years in a row and I will keep doing it as long as bring your own jokes is a thing because, yeah, it's meant a lot to me. Yeah, it's been exciting as well seeing all the other comedians coming out of the Decades Project once it became formalised and seeing yeah Chelsea coming through and Chrissy and Hare and Jenny moving and sort of doing some comedy and then the music stuff and obviously I had Arlo working for me this year at Edinburgh which was amazing it was brilliant to have somebody there as well to just remind me why I was doing it and obviously Mart's brilliant artwork that was my Edinburgh poster this year. We cannot not talk about that. It was, uh, I was working with Jamie Michaela who did my photos and she was gonna do the design. And then Mart's proactively sent me what came to be the poster and it didn't even seem to have taken him very long. I sent it to Jamie and Jamie was like, I can't improve it, that's it. <laughs> Lock it in, let's do it. So. Um, it properly, cause as a photo, it's a great shot, but just doing the artwork on it is just it just kind of lifts it and it's like just really really nice you were a forward-thinking decader did you have any original decade goals when you first got up on stage in edinburgh and you did you have a vision of the 10 years and what you wanted to achieve in that time or was it sort of i'll just see how it goes I think it's a weird one for me because it started off, I was just delighted to be doing something that felt so out of the realm of what was achievable. So even getting up in front of like 20 or 30 people, would have I wouldn't have slept for a week. So even doing it, it didn't, the first few months I'd say I wouldn't, didn't even care if it was good. I was just so giddy and full of adrenaline that I was actually doing it that that carried me through and then the further into it I got the more I cared about the quality and the laughs and how my laugh rate compared to other people's and like you never get it never stops being stressful I don't think it's just different stress it goes from am I going to get on this gig am I going to do well to is that the best I could have done will this go into a show it's just it shifts it's it's good stress and it's exciting stress but it's a weird one and I had this idea in the back of my head which 
I still sort of subscribe to in the if you want to be successful in comedy because I started quite late age-wise for a woman particularly because it's not the same for women and men in terms of your shelf life as somebody who is current and I was advised by a few comedians when I started doing stuff about my age when I was 35 that I might want to consider not doing that because there is a an expectation that like everybody wants young fresh and new and by revealing my age I was sort of ruling myself out of those factions so I think I had a 10-year plan in mind anyway because I was like oh if I don't get somewhere by 45 I might start to be in a category of comedian that's that's never going to achieve like all the sort of top tier exciting things that I'd like to achieve and I didn't really want for me I, I don't think I want to be a touring comedian that does that as a job firstly I can't drive so I'm reliant on trains and that that sucks the idea of being able to drive is a foreign concept to me I shouldn't drive I would kill people so like, you're quite limited straight off the bat there in terms of how much you earn doing the regional stuff because it the fee gets hoovered up quite quickly if it's far away if there's a delay if you have to get a taxi at the end of the night but I knew I wanted to do a show at Edinburgh so that's something I, I definitely wanted to achieve but it, they've shifted over time. I think everybody, when they first start, thinks this is where I'd like to be. It might be like live at the Apollo or it might be setting out their local venue. This is what I'd like to achieve with it. But I've been really lucky and I've done some really cool stuff really early on. <laughs> and some of them I wish I had more time before I did them because I think I would have done a better job of them. But you've got to, I guess one thing I learned from this whole journey is you've got to take the opportunity when it presents to you rather than wait because you might never get it again. So I've done things that I probably wasn't ready for as a comedian just because I was asked. And I don't regret them per se, but I kind of wish I'd done them. I had more time because I think there's such a rush for comedians to be good really quickly, to be doing these bigger gigs. And I was not ready for a lot of the gigs I did. And as a result, you know, I made an impression that I can't, easily shift so I guess my one bit of advice to any comedians is don't rush I still don't have a brilliant 10 because I was doing new I was doing new material every night I did and it was kind of a winner stays on so a few things stayed on but then I was trying new stuff and writing new stuff every time but as a result I never perfected a bulletproof 10 and five years later that has come to haunt me because you do competitions and things and it's like oh what am I going to do tonight it's not right I've got this 10 that always works it's an absolute banger so this year my goal is to get that 10 nailed down (laughs) I could do a really good 45 with a brilliant story through it but I can't do a competition 10 to a northern room where the audience isn't soft lovely metropolitan people that I'm used to (laughs) so so the overall aim is um get 10 minutes worth of jokes that works past Watford (laughs) Yeah, it will always work. Whatever audience, when you go out and you look at the audience, you go, right, this is this is going to be for them. Because I'm, I'm working mainly up north now because uh, being based in Sheffield. And it's the audiences are a different style. Like a lot of the rooms I'm doing, they, they love puns, like in a way that I've not seen for a long time. And sort of more old school Saturday night cabaret materials works better than the storytelling, which is my natural position so I'm finding myself moving the sets around now to I've got some puns in there so I'm like I'm finishing on the pun because it's the best joke in the deck which I would not have anticipated me comparing my mum as a Karen to Lazy Susan's I did not have that on my bingo card as my big finish but we are where we are just learning all the time with comedy (laughs) nothing is a sure thing which is the terrifying thing and as somebody who fears and hates change I cannot understand how I've got into this but the excitement of it keeps me going. I think if it became formulaic and dull and I was doing the same thing over and over again, I probably wouldn't have lasted as long either. Do you still enjoy it? I love it. On a good day, it's the best thing in the world. On a bad day, oh. 
<laughs> but I think that's the, that's the beauty of it. And every now and again, I have to think about what a privilege it is. Because if I've done four gigs in a row and I've had a mediocre response on three out of four of them, the fourth one, I, it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy that that fourth one's not going to be very good. But you have to think, people are going to listen to what I've got to say for 10 minutes. And if I'm very, very lucky, I'm going to make them laugh loads and I'm going to improve their mood and I'm going to change their day. And it might just, there might just be a woman in the audience that sees me and goes, oh, I could be a woman in comedy. So there's so much joy to be had in it regardless of how it goes in that 10 minutes I was backstage at the lead mill in Sheffield and I was like this is an iconic music venue rock stars have looked into this mirror and I'm moaning that I think it's a bit quiet out there it's like this is this is a privilege I get to put false eyelashes on I get to wear stupid shoes nobody feels sorry for me when I have a bad night of comedy and they shouldn't (laughs) that is all as a result of you going yeah I could do this at 4 4 a.m in the morning yeah and having people agree with me having people like because I did a session with Ian Smith and you know it was iconic comedian that I loved who told me yeah that's you can you can do this you're funny like saying it out loud and having people agree with you sometimes is very powerful so uh, what have you what the highlights been for you over the four or five years that you've been doing I got to do a charity gig at Alexandra Palace that was sold out and it was Nish Kumar, Ed Gamble, Russell Howard, Flo and Joan and uh, Glenn Moore was the MC. Yeah. And for some reason I was there. And this was about, I'd only been doing comedy for about two years and it came about in, in those kind of chaotic ways where you don't realise you've done something, you've done something small years before and you didn't realise the impact it would have. So in my day job, there was quite a quiet journalist on a corporate event that I wanted to chat to. Nobody was chatting to her and I was like, like, I'm going to go and chat to her. And we became friends and it turns out she has a child in the same school as one of the bookers from Avalon. So a couple of years later, I get this DM on my Facebook saying, I've been talking to you with a woman at the school gates who works at Avalon. She's doing a charity gig. Would you want to be part of it? So just doing doing a nice thing, talking to somebody who wasn't having wasn't having a good time at a party years before resulted in one of the biggest gigs I've ever done and meeting some proper heroes. And it was just an unbelievable night. Like my name was on the door of one of the dressing rooms. Everything in the fridge was free. I told them, and I said to Nish backstage, I was like, because he introduced himself as like, I'm Nish. I was like, I know who you are in a, in a very yeah. cool manner. And I said to him, I was like, does this ever, you know, does, does the novelty ever wear off doing this? Like the, the roar of an, mm. a thousand people laughing was something I'd never heard before. And the idea that they might laugh at me or not, like the sound of a thousand people being silent was don't don't get me wrong that was right there in the back of my mind as well but when I came off stage he was like no if it does you you know basically you shouldn't be doing comedy get out of it because this is this is a privilege and a joy and it always should be and it I went out and a thousand people laughed at my jokes and I only got through six minutes so I was enjoying people laughing so much that I barely got through my set and uh, I went backstage and Nish was waiting behind the curtain to give me a high five when I came off which was so lovely mm-hmm. and that's the thing like meeting they say don't meet heroes but most of the time everyone I've met has been absolutely brilliant and then Russell Howard was the headliner and he referred to one of the jokes in my set in his set and I was like this is the best day of my life you couldn't have imagined that though when you were just sat in your office kitchen going I've got to do a presentation next week on X, Y and Z and then <laughs> 
Oh, by the way, you do know in a couple of years' time. But the weirdest bit is then, like, the next day I had to go to work. That was a Sunday night. And people were like, what did you do on the weekend? And you're a bit, it's awkward to bring up. It's like, I did this unbelievable thing, actually. Oh, you went for a roast. I uh, played a sellout uh, show at Alexandra Palace with people from telly. But I still had to do my job. Do you know what? I started to be there at 9am and life went back to how it was. I normally ask whether your goals have kind of changed over time, but you've kind of talked a little bit about that. In the next five years, or for the rest of the decade, the next eight years, what do, what does Vix look like, or Vix the comedian, or Vix the consumer champion look like in that in that ten years? Well, it's I'm having a bit of a sort of review. Obviously, you come to the end of the year and you review the year before, but I think because I've done two Edinburgh's now, I'm having a bit of a review of what I want from comedy and what success looks like. Because I think I put every, I took every opportunity that I was offered with comedy because I was so excited about it. So I was doing podcasts, I was doing tens in places, I was travelling to eight hours to do ten minutes to six people and a dog. I think it, I might I might change my mind, but doing antihero every day for a month made me think that maybe because initially I thought I wanted to be a kind of touring comedian, sort of like Mark, so go and do theatres full of people, and that would be my job, but. I was sick of Antihero by the end of that run. And I can't imagine doing like the schedule that the average touring comedian does of like doing like 60, 70 dates in a year. I, I worry I would hate that show with a fiery passion by the end. So that was what I thought in my first five years I was working towards to create these perfect shows, build up an audience, go to the new theatre in Cardiff, like my local theatre where I used to see comedians go to the Glee Club, perform the hour to people that are receptive and want to hear the hour, but I'm not sure that's true anymore, which is, uh, it's been a, a weird conclusion to come to because I spent all of last year building Antihero, did Antihero, and I spent the last couple of months getting over it. I mean, PTSD is strong, but, and as a result, I wasn't working on my 10s, I wasn't working on my 20s, so I'm not sure if I'm any better as a club comic, which is sort of the day-to-day bread and butter of comedy than I was when I went. So I think next year, I'm probably not going to do a solo show. I'm going to focus on getting those bulletproof 10, 15, 20 sets together. And probably, I, I won't be able to stay away from Edinburgh, but we'll go up and just perform for the joy of performing. Because it, it felt like a nine to five job. Because I was doing Antihero at one twenty, and then Comedy Arcade at 4.40. So I was in the stand three all day, every day for a whole month. <laughs> Going there at 11, coming out at six, and I was absolutely exhausted by it. So, and I, I don't ever want it to feel like that. So I think it has changed my idea of what my next five years looks like, but I don't know what it looks like now. So I'm having conversations and thinking about it and no doubt you'll all hear about it on Twitter. Well, artists normally known as. I want to find the joy in it again and doing some new material and trying new stuff has been much, much more fun for me than doing a long show. (laughs) Is there an element of, well, I've done it now, of knowing, knowing you can do it, and it not necessarily be the be all and end all for you and you want to try something else. But the idea of taking a show to Edinburgh was probably very alien to you prior to doing it the first time. And then you did it. And then it's like, okay, it might not be for me in the future, but I've done it. And that feels like an achievement. Yeah, the first year it was just, it wasn't a great year, but I thought it was because the show wasn't ready. This last year I was like, right, I'm going to put my whole effort, my whole love into making this show as ready as it can be. 
And yeah, I don't know. I was speaking to Andrew O'Neill about it actually, and they said I'm still very young in my comedy career to be pitching for a show of that amount. Because if you think of what Jordan Gray did, yeah. like she was on the circuit six or seven years, putting together an absolute best of that made up that incredible, like sort of game changing show of hers, and it it, it worked out <laughs> in terms of being the best new, you know, it was the yeah. best newcomer, but it wasn't. She wasn't new by any stretch. She'd been working really hard under the surface for all that time to create this brilliant debut. And it's like, if I had my time again, I might have done that. But then I probably wouldn't have. Because you always want to be the one that is, the one that breaks the mold and that does things differently and it, it works out for. I guess that's the, the trouble with a show busy thing is you see it happen. You see uh, the urban legends happen to you. Sometimes you are in the, you are living, like I was with Jordan, in the flat next to them, in a studio flat next to somebody who does the trajectory that keeps everybody going back to Edinburgh year after year after year. Because you know it could happen to you because you've seen it. Well, I think it, from the outside looking in, you, you go, this individual's just appeared from nowhere. But yeah. you don't see, like you say, the six years of performing to one one person and their dog uh, and the graph that goes into getting to that point. And it, it's yeah. lovely when it happens, but it doesn't happen very often. No, but, you, you know, everybody is the main character in their own story. You want to believe it will happen to you. And I don't think I ever want to drop that notion either because I think... I don't want to give up on the idea that I could be discovered for something. It might not be comedy. It might be podcasting. It might be something that I'm not... I guess the one thing that's starting comedy so far into a career that I was already in showed me that five years' time, me might be doing something completely different. Maybe I'll find my Olympic sport. Maybe, Maybe it's curling. I've never tried. It could be. Maybe I'll be, you know, five years' time. Long it's jump. Nice. I don't think I've got the muscles for long jump, but who knows? I didn't think I had the muscles for comedy. Like, I... Someone sees you going for a bus and thinks... I know. Hurdler. Yeah. You can't rule it out. Like, this has happened to me by, you know, I'm only doing comedy because Mark Watson answered a tweet. So you, yeah. you just cannot rule out what's going to happen. It could be. A, an Olympic scout is out there. I'm running for the bus. I jump over a puddle. They're like, we need her on the team. You know, it could happen. And I think that's life is exciting and interesting and chaotic. And you probably shouldn't plan too far in advance because you, you genuinely don't know what's around the corner. Do you need any help or support in achieving your decade goals? I mean, it's just keep keeping up, basically, for me. Like the, like I said, the decaders and the wider Watson community have been my biggest champions and have kept me going when I probably would have quit a million times. So it's, yeah, every, every time someone comes to the show that I recognise from Twitter, it means so much to me. Every time someone retweets a show that I'm in, it, it's... It's huge. It's such a team effort to get to a recognisable stage in comedy, even on a tiny scale. And it requires so many people for that to happen. You're not on your own with it. And I, I feel like I, I feel like I got a sneaky head start, to be honest. So, so a head start on other comedians or in the kind of decade approach. Well, a bit of on a on the other on other comedians because I had this built-in team of people that were already cheering me on and wishing me well, and I could go and say I've got this joke, and they go, "That's great," but we thought about doing it like this. <laughs> when you've got hundreds of comedy literate people mm. to tell you very kindly and, and very carefully what you could improve, or to reassure you that with all the experience of comedians that you're doing a good job. Sometimes that's enough. Like the fact that everybody is so such huge comedy fans because that's what I am at heart. Like I'm still a fan more than anything else. I can't believe I get to do it. But yeah, when you get people who you, who like the same comedians you like and rate the same comedians that you rate, 
then come to your shows. It's just like, ah, oh, yeah, this maybe I'll, maybe I'll carry on then. <laughs> this is this is going okay. So I think I was lucky to have the the long show people that evolved into the decades project. I'm really glad that there are so many more people coming through that and coming through it well with like personal goals and and the sort of the bigger big dream dream big goals as well. It's it's lovely to follow. I love following it. I see a lot of it. <laughs> My Twitter is curated. People are like oh Twitter's a trash fire. Mine is so curated <laughs> that I mostly see people sharing little games that they've made, artwork. Like when Jenny got into the course that she wanted to do. Like I'm so invested in everybody and I'm lucky that I've met quite a few of them along the way, but. Wow. Yeah, it's lovely seeing people graduate through the levels and going beyond what they thought they could. Yeah, it's a nice reminder that humans are good. I think if more people were in the decade circles of Twitter, they'd yeah. be better off for it. <laughs> You're absolutely right. It is a reminder that people are good and there are lots of lots of good people out there. And I think it's it's nice to see. From a consumer champion perspective, what are the next steps for you? Um, I have I've got a consumer podcast called False Economy that I do with Mark's brother Paul. And um, the conceit initially was that Paul sounded like Mark, looked like Mark, but was much cheaper, which is very much in the spirit of the show. But he is absolutely brilliant. We have so much fun together. So I'm hoping that becomes a bit more of a thing. We're moving it away from celebrity interviews. You heard it here first, but by the time this comes out, everybody will know. But uh, it's moving away from celebrity interviews and more towards it being about me and Paul looking at deals, helping with consumer affairs, commenting on the news, telling people what they should know. So becoming more experts in the field, hopefully, which will hopefully lead to more things like Steph's Pack Lunch and being able to talk about meal deals on the BBC and like (laughs) using my PR powers for good. (laughs) I guess marrying up my day job with the comedy stuff is, is the dream, really. So being able to do things with a bit like slightly more in-depth than what Joe Lysett does but being able to do a little bit of both doing like helping people manage through cost of living crisis with humor and honesty I, I think there's a gap in the market for it and I hope it's something that I can be sort of part of fulfilling thank you Pix for joining me on the Decade Podcast it's been fantastic speaking to you it's been a real joy to speak to you for this long because we obviously meet fleetingly every now and again, usually at gigs. So it's rare that you get the time to actually spend on a one-to-one basis. So I've had a, I've had a lovely time. So thank oh. you for having me on. Well, it is the end, but what a lovely way to end the series. Thank you so much to Vix for joining me to round off series three. And it really has been a wild ride this series. From joining the Navy to refusing to answer any of my questions... We've travelled all over the world and spoken to some fabulous decaders to the roll call. Thank you to Arlo, Anne, Dave, Sam, Jessica, Anna, Will, Kimberly, Nat, and of course, Fix. And you know what? Thank you to absolutely every single one of you that's listened as well. It's a delight doing these. Keep being you and keep being solid gold legend.
I'm hoping I got my maths right, and this is actually out on Christmas Day. And because you love the podcast so much, you've gathered the entire family around the fire, and instead of watching the King's speech, you've decided to listen to me. Well, forget about me. Here's a Christmas message from Vix. That must be the sound of bells I can hear. It's Christmas Day. It's a really good week to start thinking about what you want your next year to look like and uh, dream big on it. So it's a bit of downtime now. Use it. Have a think. Do the thing. If somebody offers you something weird, book a course, do a thing. Like do one thing today that will set up 2024 into a year that's going to be your best yet. That is my hope for all the decaders. Merry Christmas. I love you all.